No one who's reading this is thinking, well, actually, come on, man. I you know. didn't have to. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. At the very least, it's a footnote, right? You put the asshole-ish comments in the footnote if you feel like you have to include them. <laughs> Yo, what is going down, everybody? Welcome to Owls at Dawn. We are just two dudes from Southern California who studied philosophy, politics, and religion around the world and decided to start a podcast where we could bullshit with impunity. I am a vitalized Austin Hayden Smith. And I am a devitalized Troy Polidori. <laughs> yeah, I was setting you up. I was setting. I was. That was like a law, but yeah, that's perfect. I, I think that's about right. So we're gonna have to try to. We're gonna have to try to fuse together where our powers are combined, and we can create Captain Owls at dawn. So um, <laughs> our powers combined, so a, a positive and a, and a zero <laughs> equals the same positive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. So we're gonna we're gonna that's do our like best. How, uh, yeah, LeBron James and Taylor Horton Tucker are the best duo on the court, right? Exactly, exactly. So now that I am deemed the LeBron for this episode, let's get shit started. Yeah, dude. <laughs> You're the LeBron for every episode. Now let's be real. Uh, well, You're you the LeBron pe- of my heart. Oh, man. Uh, why don't you tell people, give them the lowdown. What are we doing this week? So we're doing things a little bit different. This week, we're going to jump straight into our main topic, which is the fifth chapter of Marcus Gabriel's Fields of Sense. Uh, we're doing that because our normal shitty minute and sticky leaves is going to probably, we determined it would be about the election results and everything happening since then. So we figured let's just kind of overlap those together. There'll be lots of shitties and stickies in the middle of that and make that a bonus episode for the patrons. And then, uh, yeah, just do that and jump straight into our main topic so we can dedicate a little bit more time to it. And then if you want access to that good old stickies and shitties, then uh, you can go to patreon.com slash owlsatdawn and get access to stuff like bonus episodes, newsletters, and access to contribute to our next Democracy Motherfuckers deal, which is where you select the patron-sponsored episode for that month, which is, I believe, up right now, right? The suggestions uh, thread for that? It is indeed. Yeah, we are fielding suggestions. So if you're a patron and you did not receive a notification or if you just missed it or something like that, make sure to go to Patreon. There's a post up, comment below. Um, we've got a handful already. We'd like to get somewhere in like the 10 range or, or more um, just so that we can have a, a decent selection to choose from. So definitely get over there. And if you've already if you've already uh, chosen one too, you, you, don't, you don't have to just stop at one. But I would say don't do like 20 suggestions, you know? Because then it's just too many. But yeah, yeah. Um, so go over there, patreon.com slash owls at dawn. You can get access to all the goodies. And as Troy said, we're going to be doing a special election bonus episode that is going to be released. Um, well, by the time this episode's out, it's already out. So this episode will be out. We generally takes about a week for him to come out, you know, five days to a week for the episode to come out. But the bonus episode is going to be up pretty damn quickly. So uh, I'm going to say it's already live if you're listening to this now. Yeah, yeah. So let's jump into the fifth chapter of Marcus Gabriel's Fields of Sense, yeah? Yeah, so I just opened up my iPad to open up the book, and I I guess I fell asleep to Netflix last night because the SpongeBob movie, Sponge on the Run, is staring me in the face. And I was like, that's not what I need, but it's it's making me very happy, so. You were watching the SpongeBob movie at night last night in bed? Well, no. No, it's just like it's just like uh, you know the advertisement that's trying to promote that film to watch. Yeah, fuck it. So um, what? I was wa- I was watching SpongeBob. So what, dude? <laughs> no judgment. Just asking. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Okay, all right. So 
Marcus Gabriel, Chapter 5. So, okay, so for people who have not been following along, don't trip. We're going to try to do our best to explain the argument thus far, and then uh, we'll expand on that argument that he's developing in his fifth chapter, so it should make sense. For people who have been following along, bear with us. We're going to do a quick little recap here, hopefully as a refresher, and then, uh, again, we're going to expand and move forward. I will say, right off the bat, first thing, I was just excited to see Sartre mentioned twice in this chapter, so <laughs> that was good. Yeah, you appreciate that, right? Because your boy a little name drop. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, okay, <clears throat> so... Can you give the 30-second trailer version of Fields of Sense chapters 1 through 4, Troy? Yes, yeah, so maybe not 30 seconds, but here's how I'll do it. So far, most of the book has been dedicated towards the negative project I would uh, deem as, uh, in this, as far as what Gabriel's doing in this book. The negative project is something like um, critiquing how ontology and metaphysics have been done through much of the Western canon, right? So it's kind of like a, a Heideggerian um Analogous to the Heideggerian project in that sense, right? Yes. Uh, and, and Gabriel makes that explicit um, throughout. The last chapter was specifically talking about how um, set theoretical ontology or the sort of resurrection um, of that sort of method of doing ontology might have some similar uh, might have a similar structure, some similar content, come to similar conclusions as the ones he's come to. Things like existence not being a proper property, um, critiquing by the, the sort of boogeyman, which goes by various names of reductive physicalism or reductive naturalism, or what's the term he uses for it in this chapter we're doing right now, which I was just fed up with the names, eliminativist microphysicalism, oh, yes. which is fine as a name because it's actually very descriptive of what's going on there. But I just can't stand how many names this boogeyman has. Oh, right, right, yeah. It worries me, right? It's definitely like, you know, the devil who goes by many names. Do you, do, is it also, is it also kind of, is it because he's trying to encompass pretty much everything so that anyone who's reading it or any of his, quote, boogeymen will be identified adequately and that even like the philosophers, like when he said eliminativist microphysicalism, I was, when I first read eliminativist, I was thinking, oh, he's going to talk about like Churchland and shit like that. So Mm -hmm. he's, it's like he's trying to to bring together both, um, you know, scientistic nihilists and scientistic reductionists. But also he's like, hey, and just so you know, I also know you philosophers out there, you're trying to play this reductionistic game, you know? Um, so I get that he's trying to do that, but I wonder, is it almost, it becomes too difficult to track then because it's a little bit scattered. Is that is that a problem, you think? I don't think so necessarily. I mean, we'll see if that continues to be a thing. And it, it's going to be frustrating Mostly just because, and I think this is an appropriate thing for Gabriel to claim, there's lots of different moves that you can make that come to a similar conclusion or that have this family resemblance between them in being reductive or eliminativist, which is two different things, right? He makes a distinction between those two things and thinks uh, eliminativism or the sort of method of elimination is even worse than reduction um, for reasons we'll get into. But um I think it's appropriate that there's many names because there's there's you know differences, there's micro differences between them um, yeah. that are real. Uh, I, I would love to have a sort of catch-all idea 
um, of what they all have in common since it's very clear that they all have something in common. They're engaged in a similar project that he's critical of and he's sort of bludgeoning them, bludgeoning them all with the same stick. So to speak, yeah. right? Yes. And, and you know what would be great, in, and I probably won't do this, but it would be nice if this book had a glossary. And I mean, or, or almost like a dictionary of terms where you could say like, okay, because he's developing a system, right? And we have this for Hegel, you have this for Sartre, you have this for Bedou. It would be nice if there was like, and maybe there is, maybe someone has done this. So if, if someone knows of something, um, hit us up. But it'd be nice if there was a dictionary of terms, a dictionary of philosophical terms that sort of demarcate and define and and nicely index his system you know yeah i mean um assuming there's some like consistency between them all which i, I yeah. assume that there is yeah and that's what i was gonna, like like normally a dictionary is alphabetical i almost wonder if the it would be better to okay you can have them alphabetical just so you could easily find them in like one part of the dictionary but then also it'd be good to thematically categorize them you know so that you kind of have like, okay, zooontological, I don't know how you would categorize them, but like zooontological optimism, and then you would have all of the terms that fit under maybe that. So you'd have to have like a, a category and then like subcategories that all sort of relate and maybe expand upon and define or something along the, that might be kind of cool. So, yeah. yeah, so I think that's something we can come back to later on and see if we can come up with a, even if not, if not thematical, uh, maybe dialectical, right? Mm. How mm. the sort of dialectic yes. of argument um, proceeds, because there's clearly a dialectic in this process as we're as we're moving further into the negative project in order to get into the positive project, and we're getting some crumbs in this chapter, chapter five of that positive project. Right. Although he put fields of sense in the chapter title, right? It's domains of objects and fields of sense, and he doesn't really talk about fields of sense in this chapter. So that was a little bit of a tease, Marcus. I don't think he uses the word fields at all in the chapter he talks about yeah. scent he talks about sense but i'm curious because he's talking about i guess now we're just going to be talking about the chapter right did we give a, a, a good little overview already well no i haven't quite finished that yet so okay go ahead go ahead yeah. about the previous chapter then okay. kind of two key sort of thematic ideas in this dialectic one is disenchantment which has been a lot of the last episode on this text talking about and we might know the basic idea behind disenchantment as being the notion that's in some previous, maybe pre-modern era, um, the world was enchanted. Your ontology is enchanted in some respect. And that ends with the project of modernity and with enlightenment. It's a common sense view that the enlightenment engaged in this disenchantment project, such that the world is ultimately meaningless now, right? It's just sort of atoms in motion or whatever. Um, and all subjectivity and stuff like that is unreal, illusory, whatever. So it's this process of reduction. Um, and Gabriel really goes to town hmm. trying to undermine that there was ever, um, that that was ever the case, right? That, that, that's an appropriate way to view the, the project of modernity. Um, and then also we should say ontotheology, which I think is a term we're going to bring up more and more as it becomes more ubiquitous in the argument. And ontotheology is his name for the attempt to combine ontology and metaphysics. So metaphysics is kind of working there somewhat, um, maybe extensionally equivalent to metaphysics or metaphysics with theology. They're kind of extensionally equivalent there, um, referring to the same things. So, and that's a good thing to mention because we'll get into again in this chapter, a bit about how that move of making ontology, um, so what being is, 
the same project as meta or involving in some way metaphysics, which is something like the science of first causes or an all-encompassing domain or a fundamental um, source of all reality or something like that. Any of those are versions of metaphysics. That's the, the ultimate mistake, which um, Western philosophy has, has made uh, from Aristotle on oftentimes, and that's Gabriel's critiquing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you've been you've been balls deep in some Kant lately. So is it is it fair to say that the critical project, the way that it engages with metaphysics, because for Kant, is it not that the what does he call them, the ideas of reason or something along those lines, the things that are kind of beyond that? It's what you have, uh, you have world, soul, and God. Isn't that right? Um, and those are things that we can never really sort of accede to. Are those would those be the sort of like metaphysical postulates of uh, that Kant is identifying that Gabriel, at least examples of them, that Gabriel is kind of identifying as um, as variations, let's say, on uh, on all encompassing domains, and that for Kant, yes. like Kant, 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 obviously, kind of like he hesitates to resolve um, any sort of like conflation maybe between ontology and metaphysics but nevertheless i mean obviously gabriel critiques him in chapter three um for for kind of like weakly doing that but ultimately kind of sneaking in his own metaphysical project in the back door but that's kind of what the critical project is trying to do right is it's trying to kind of like make a gap between the metaphysical and um at least knowledge of the metaphysical right yeah or at least saying you don't have to do metaphysics to do ontology i think is the basic idea I mean, I think actually, the, as much as he's critiquing Kant in chapter three, Kant and Frege, I think, are actually like his saviors. Like they're the mm. ones who, in the midst of the stormy sea of metaphysics, pointed out the fact that, look, let's just get to land, right? Which mm. is doing ontology without metaphysics. And so as much as the chapter is titled, right, what's wrong with Kant and Frege, but really it's what's right with Kant and Frege, it, although they didn't quite go far enough, Right. Um, mm. that, that's why I took the tenor of that chapter. And I have a note here, which we can get to in a minute, where I think he's really just radicalizing Kant. He's saying Kant is um, the one along with Frege, right? They both did something really important in this respect that dialectically going to be synthesized into something like Gabriel's project, combining mm. something like Kant's, um, Kant's rejection of, of metaphysics or critique of pure reason with Gabriel's notion of modes of presentation and try to combine those things into an ontology that denies metaphysics as he's um, defining it, which is something like the science of first causes or uh, totalizing domains. Um, so yeah, I think that's a, I think we're already kind of getting into the meat of this chapter, so we should probably stick, take a step back first. Okay. But that's the that's a bit of the, the bird's eye view of what's going on. Cool, cool, cool. Um, do we have more to say with the recap? I don't think so, no. Um, just real quick, I do want to say just because I really like the terms and I find them to be very, very, very useful. They're very, very useful. Um, they're very useful, and I've been thinking about them a lot just in, in other readings that I'm doing as well. But the categories that he calls um, uh, zoontological optimism and zoontological pessimism. Um, so zoontological optimism is basically the idea uh, that you could call like a idealism or a subjectivism. Right, and zoontological pessimism is sort of associated with like uh, reductive naturalism, physicalism, something along those lines, and um, those are things that he's trying to navigate uh, around or beyond or between or through or whatever. Um, but either of those tendencies, um, because they do come up in various guises, and uh, and I think that that's also an interesting thing to consider. So just wanted to give a quick shout out to that. 
Yeah, that's kind of that's the antinomy, right? To use the Kant analogy here. Yeah. That's the thesis and antithesis, and the antinomy is there's something true about the fact that um, that there's like some sort of structure of reality uh, that's that science is able to discover, right? That's an important thing, and that enlightenment, the project of enlightenment, um, was about discovering, right, and making certain things illusory. Um, there's also truth to the fact that there's something real about subjectivity, right? It's not just, that's not an illusory thing that's reducible to some more fundamental picture, whether it be physics or something else. Um, and so his project is in a really kind of grand scope, trying to synthesize uh, those two and come up with a resolution to that antinomy. Yeah, I mean, is it is it too... Is it too simplified to say that this antinomy can be related to the distinction between form and content? And so zoontological optimism um, is overly concerned with um, the, former, the, the formal processes of, of cognition, and zoontological pessimism is just concerned with like supposed sheer receptivity of content and data, right? And, um, and the way that Kant kind of bridges them together with this kind of relationship, you know, by saying that form without content is blind and content without form is, uh, what is it, nonsense or meaningless or whatever it is that he says. I can't remember the exact phrasing. But um, uh, th- is it something along those lines, you think? I don't know. I have to say more. I mean, do you mean like the, the Kantian term about uh, uh, concepts without content and content without concepts? Is yeah. Is the it, analogy here? Yeah, exactly. And so, like, if you if you if you just kind of operate from the perspective of like, um, like a formal investigation, then what you end up having is concepts, right? Um, uh, putative, you know, um, meanings that are 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 kind of being articulated. But that's you know something that takes place at the level of the subject, right? Um, whereas, and so there's the like transcendental a ra- ideal part, yeah, yeah. And so there's a rationality that 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 accompanies that. Whereas if you just operate from the other pole of that duality with the side of content, what you have is a sort of just um, a flow of sort of irrational inputs, we might say, or brute scientific facts, or um, the possibility of there just being like a sheer receptivity of, uh, of sense datum. And um, that would be kind of akin to um, a, a zoontological pessimistic project insofar as the zoontological pessimistic orientation says, well, that's really only the stuff that matters. Whereas the zoontological optimist um, opts for the other side of that polarity. Yeah, maybe. You have to think about that a little bit more. Uh, I do think there's something there that Gabriel thinks Kant got right in sort of rejecting um, what hadn't quite, like the empiricist kind of reduction, which hadn't quite manifested itself in its full guise, which I think Gabriel would say happens in the 20th century um, in America, especially with like Quine. Um, but I, I do know he also ultimately rejects the whole transcendental idealism picture. So he wants to make an even stronger claim than Kant does, right? He says at one point that Kant thought that the search for the unconditioned um, was beyond the bounds of human knowledge, right? So it's it's this sort of transcendental thing which we don't have access to it's the noumenon right Mm. and so we need to just restrict it as epistemically unavailable for us right Uh, and that's sort of the the dialectic in the critique of pure reason is to to show that that kind of thing is nonsense um, from a theoretical point of view but Gabriel says he wants to make an even stronger claim than that and just say there's no such thing at all 
It's not even that we can't access it epistemically. It's that there's it's just nonsense. There yeah, is he, no thing at he all. He even says in this chapter there is no such thing as the undetermined. The unconditioned. The unconditioned, I'm sorry. Yeah. But yeah, I mean yeah. that's synonymous probably. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, but it's different to say we don't have access to it and then there is no such thing as it, right? Which is where he spends a little right. bit of a little bit of time in chapter three on Kant. That Kant, you know, says, Oh, we can't have access to it, but what is the status of that thing? And that's when he starts talking about schmexistence and Craigsistence and all that other shit, right? Like what is the status of the unconditioned? Um is it even something we can speak of in terms of existence and possible existence? And then he starts talking about shim possible shim's existence, right? <laughs> um, because to even try to accede to say that, oh, we can't have knowledge to it is already making a sort of like claim upon the object. And Gabriel wants to intensify that even further by saying, well, no, actually, we just need to reject it. There is no such thing at all. And he italicizes thing, and I think the point is, is that there is no such object, we might say, as, as the unconditioned. In other words, that's the critique of metaphysics. There is no such domain. There is no such entity. There is no such universe as that which is unconditioned. There is no such um, single prior a priori foundation, we might say, that is that which is unconditioned upon which conditioned cognition um is built right right that's the that's essentially the negative project is he can show that there's no such thing as the unconditioned that there we don't even need to worry about the unconditioned noumenon right at all then that opens up space to say well then what what is there and that's that claim which he's he's sort of you know pointed to already is that existence is a property not of objects but of the domains uh, which contain objects Right. right, and then he's going to use the sort of modes of presentation stuff from Freya to um, make a case for this sort of. I mean, I'm calling it like a pluralist account of existence. I don't know if you'd agree with that, and we'll see if that's how it how it ends up um, coming out. But that's, I think, what the idea is. Mm. Yeah, because he says, you know, that um, existence is not a property of objects. Existence is solely a property of domains, which is going to be interesting. Because I think domains is consonant with his term fields, which he's going to develop later. But I think it also relates analogously to Frege's notion of concepts, right? Is that right? Where, or ideas. Or ideas. Which. Right. Things only exist insofar as what they are like under a concept, right? That for Frege, is it something they along those They fall under a concept. They yeah. fall under a concept. So then, um, so then I think for Gabriel, something is an object insofar as it appears or is presented within a field, right? Which is kind of his, I think that's how he's going to invert or or transform Frege, no? Yeah, he even says in this chapter, the kind of, I call it like the domain argument, which is to consider the idea that to exist, it's belong to a domain, right? What does right. that mean then? And to use that um, as an argument for, again, this idea that a totalizing domain, an all-encompassing domain, whether it be, a, he calls it an overmining one or an undermining one, yeah, um, you know what's funny? can't possibly exist. We, we talked a little bit, I think, at one point in a previous episode, because I, I, I got hints of Harmon in this, and I was and thinking... And mentions them, yeah. Yeah, and then I was thinking earlier, I was like, man, when he talked about, like, you know, it's we can't accede to the universe as being the single domain of all things as some sort of, like, grand idea, but then we can't also, like, uh, go down into the depths and find, like, some sort of micro-particularity that is that is the true foundation of all realities, right? And I was like, oh, man, that sounds a lot like the overmining, undermining of Harmon, and then Harmon came up, and I was like, okay, cool, 
cool. I was like, yeah. And and I'm curious because Harmon is one of those figures who is he's really like Marmite, you know? Like people fucking love him or they hate him. <laughs> you know? Nice nice use of Australian. Uh... <laughs> yeah. And and so I'm really curious. I'm I'm really curious to see how the argument unfolds because Obviously, he's engaging with certain figures within realism, and it's so interesting. Like, just every once in a while, he just will say, like, like Harmon's overmining, undermining, and then there's a footnote. Or he'll say, like he does here, um, like Mayasu's ancestrality, and then that's all he says. And it's like in a parenthetical, right? And it's, so it's really interesting. I'm curious. I'm almost curious, like, who this book is written for in some ways, right? Because analytic philosophers probably have no fucking clue who Harmon and Mayasu are, Um and continental philosophers don't spend a lot of time reading Frege and Carnap. So it's very interesting how he just kind of throws out, oh, that's like Mayasu's ancestrality, as though readers of Carnap will be like, yes. Like I can just imagine like Liam K. Bright reading this being like, hmm, yes, like Mayasu's ancestrality. Like, like probably not, you know? Like so it is kind of – I'm always thinking about that as well. Like who is this book written to? And yeah, yeah, that's kind of – yeah, I mean, I think Gabriel himself has a sort of a normative project of reconciling, you know, contemporary continental and analytic philosophy. And I think in a very helpful way, because they are talking about things that overlap, not entirely, but there's a lot of overlap in the projects, um, especially in sort of reconfiguring how philosophy and science work together and sort of, you know, the post-Kantian spirit responding to Kant again after forgetting about Kant for a while, right? Kant and Hegel and, you know, the whole German idealist project. So that's there's a lot of constants between the schools of thought in the last, you know, 40 years. And even further, if you go back, he mentions obviously Frege and Carnap and others. So I really appreciate that. I know a lot of people probably don't have familiarity with both schools of thought, but his ability to do that I think is very helpful. And also it's kind of like a bigger bigger point about philosophical methodology, which is, you know, philosophers who end up part of the canon, whether in, you know, continental or analyst schools, they're there for a reason, usually. Now, sometimes mm. they're just all bad, but that's pretty rare, right? Usually there's something insightful about the work that they've done that made them this important, right? Mm. Try and dig out what that is. Try and figure out its its role in the, dial- in the overall dialectic, right? and sort of synthesize it. That doesn't mean that you take everything that's ever existed and like plug it into the worst pot pie imaginable, right? Mm. But you take out the good stuff that you know fits together in a, like a logical coherence with the other good stuff. And that project of synthesis, I think is, is important for trying to figure out why something matters. Like what's the insight here, even with things you, you know, really ultimately disagree with. And Gabriel, I think does a good job of that. And I, I appreciate that part just in terms of the methodology, let alone mm. the argument. Yeah. Um, I just had a thought that I wanted to say, kind of going back, we were talking about how he says there is no such thing as the unconditioned, either in the shape of the biggest thing, an all-encompassing universe, or in the shape of the most fundamental, a finite number of elementary particles, right? So uh, he just says there's simply no such thing as absolutely everything. So his rejection of the unconditioned, what that could lead one to thinking, though, is it could lead one to thinking okay, so there is no such thing as the unconditioned, but what about like radical constructivism? And what I really appreciated about this chapter is that, no, 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 no. His rejection of the unconditioned, um, it might seem as though it's just simply a rejection of 
uh, of like scientific reductionism, right? Of trying to reduce everything to the um, the findings of physics, for example. Um, and then someone might come in and be like, ah, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. But but we we already kind of recognize that that we can reject the unconditioned, and then you get all kinds of like. Um, you know, phenomenology and post-phenomenological investigations and Derridian deconstruction that oftentimes can be criticized for being trapped within um, just pure conditionality, right? That everything is therefore ultimately conditioned. Well, that would be switching from a zoontological pessimism to a zoontological optimism. So I think it right. was really it was really important that he spent this chapter saying, okay, we're rejecting the unconditioned, but we're also rejecting constructivism. And he has a sustained engagement against who I think Luhmann is his kind of like primary target here. And he mentions Luhmann in systems theory. So if people are interested in systems theory as well, he kind of is saying, no, no, because even someone like Luhmann who wants to argue that there are only localized systems, right, um, and that these systems are sort of in this process of autopoietic self-creation and self-emergence, he says even that system, even – even that as like the most radical constructivist project and therefore all constructivisms are still wedded to a notion of the one, some sort of what he calls the ineffable one, some sort of all-encompassing domain that hides behind. And he talks about a couple of things that Luhmann says and various others that sort of give the game away that ah, they are actually engaged still in a metaphysical project or we might say an ontotheological project. So you can't just because we say, okay, we're going we're gonna to deny the existence of um, the universe or the unconditioned, um, but you can't then go towards just radical conditionality. So both of those end up actually ultimately falling into the same problem as being ontotheological projects. So yeah, last thing. I want to right, say. he wants to he wants to sort of reject the all-encompassing domain, but also hold on to realism, which yes. is the strange on the surface level. It's a strange argument because we're we're sort of conditioned to. Um, when we're sort of rejecting totalizing schemes like that, fall into something like a constructivism or a relativism or you know, whatever version of you know, pure conditionality. And that's not where he's ending up, right? He wants to resurrect realism from within that realm. Um, so that's what, yeah, that's what's unique about the project and why he keeps trying to fend off or put borders around any escape route that leads to something like that. Yeah, and he, he hasn't made this argument, but there's a great essay by Frank Ruda called The Speculative Family in which Ruda critiques Canton Mayasu for Mayasu actually sneaking in his own ontotheology in the back door by speaking about the necessity of contingency um, that, that Mayasu talks about this notion of hyper-chaos as being this foundational, that everything may be other than it is, right? But in the process, that what Mayasu does is he erects his own single domain that is all-encompassing, which is the, necess the necessary law of contingency. And Ruta then goes to Hegel, and he says, well, actually, wouldn't it be better to say that even the law of contingency is contingent itself, right? And... Um, and so it's this kind of like strange dialectical transformation of that. But so what I wonder is, is that even someone like Mayasu, who is doing this speculative materialist project, that even someone like Mayasu could be criticized, just like Badiou is. Maybe it's because of both of their reliance on, on mathematics, but that there's some sort of ontotheology in both of those projects as well, right? And so that even some of these new realist projects themselves are also still guilty of falling into um, this ontotheological tendency, which is then going to be really interesting to me to see, okay, so then what is distinct about Gabriel's project, right? Because um, he's going to critique 
some of the stuff that we've talked about, like even with Sergei Prozorov and like the void with the void universalism. No, that would still be some sort of all-encompassing domain, I think, for Gabriel. So uh, again, how is he going to kind of like navigate around those things to develop his project of these fields of sense that aren't ontotheological? And what does that mean? And then what are the stakes of that? That's really what's most important for me, the stakes of this project. Yeah, I'm curious. I'll have to read that Ruda piece, but I, I wonder if making the law of contingency itself contingent, that just sounds exactly like what Mayasu claims. I mean, not literally, right? Because he says that the only thing necessary is contingency. But then what follows from that is the idea that something like necessity might arise out of contingency because that's a contingent possibility. So I don't know. I don't know if those things just like semantically to me sound the same. Um, yeah, well, Ruda, or, Ruda, Ruda argues that that's ultimately still uh, built upon the absolutization of contingency. So necessity is then secondary too, whereas the actual law of contingency itself, it's not that necessity could come out of it like a necessary existence, like a necessary law in a universe, but ne nevertheless, it's still subject to contingency. Whereas Ruta would say, no, we need to go back even further and say that actually what if contingency itself isn't absolute because then that would give room for necessity to be absolute, right? Yeah, I mean, I don't know if we're actually, at that point, if we're talking about anything that's meaningful. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I have to think about it. Okay, yeah, yeah. I have to read the piece. But yeah, anyway, I don't want to get too far into that rabbit hole. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so yeah, I think you're right about the stakes of the project is going to be a big one. It's, I think it's clear that there's there's something like, this is at the level of like the critique of pure reason, right? He's doing like the dialectic over again, in a sense, and trying to say... Here's what Kant got right, right? On the critique of existence as a proper property. And here's where Kant didn't go far enough. And he's trying to do, his positive project really is trying to do that, go far enough. Mm. The radicalization part. Mm. Yeah. Okay, so what else about this chapter? I mean, we've kind of been talking around the chapter without necessarily going too much into it, but I think we're we're kind of getting into it. So is there anything that is key about this chapter that we need to uh, discuss. Yeah, so like I'm looking at my notes and we've already talked about kind of the first half of the chapter just in in like walking around it yeah. um, and, and viewing it like an animal at the zoo, right? Um, so I guess we, we mentioned this this critique of eliminativist microphysicalism. And I think we can talk about that for a second because it seems pretty okay. key to me. And it leads him to talk about the what he calls the formal theory of objects and then his critique of constructivism, which you already talked about. But I think since that kind of ends the chapter, we can, we can try and get to that as the goal point. So he says that um, the view that he's labeling eliminativist microphysicalism, and let's break down that term, right? Eliminativist just means um, you're eliminativist about something if you think that that whole sort of domain of concepts, that whole set of concepts is not only not a it's not even illusory it's not even anything at all right it's not even a meaningful illusion and so you contrast that with reductionism and uh they're kind of in the same family right but so like we could think of we could think of reductionism as being like okay so human consciousness isn't really there it's kind of an illusion really it's just chemical flows microchemical biophysical flows in the brain etc etc that would be the reductionist argument but the eliminative argument eliminativist argument would take a step further and it would get rid of that illusion entirely by denying its existence right right there's some sense in which 
you need to explain subjectivity, right? What are the phenomenological feels that I get when I'm imagining eating ice cream or something, right? And I start like salivating or something. I need to explain that. Well, I can explain that by reducing it in some way to neurons firing in the brain, right? Mm. And he says, eliminativism is even further than that, right? It's going to argue that that never even occurs, right? It's like some sort of bug in the machine that makes you think in some sense it's occurring, but it's not. But it's not even that because you're not even really thinking that it's occurring in some phenomenological sense, right? Even that itself is not really happening. It's, it's really an extreme view, right? In terms of taking everything, but um, I mean, depending upon the view, maybe it's the most fundamental uh, particles that exist in the universe and everything else is just eliminated in the process of that. Mm. It's a very extreme view. Mm. Yeah, okay. Okay, cool. So, uh, yeah, he calls this eliminativist microphysicalism, and he says it's ultimately ineffable. It cannot state itself as even so much as a view, as it is trying yeah, to say that, that there aren't. <laughs> yeah, it cannot even state itself as a view because it's trying to say that there are no views, just the super elementary particles. It does not say that we should think of views as of super elementary particles arranged view-wise. And by the way, good luck defending that. It rather says that there really <laughs> that are no views. It's a great parenthetical. It rather says that there really are no views. Yeah, this is just straight up Kant, right? This is like Kant in the Critique of Pure Reason talking about how um, you can't only have the the single world picture, like the one world view, where there is only um, in Gabriel's terms the most fundamental particles, right? Mm. There's also reason and thought, and, and then it's a and you can't yeah, yeah. reduce the latter to the former. And then and then I like this because he every once in a while makes kind of like ethical or political hints. Um, and in this chapter, there were a couple that I kind of found interesting. Um, he says, according to elimination, illusion does not even so much as exist. It is somehow nothing, at least nothing worth analyzing. It is what the hoi polloi believe. And I found that really interesting because so... There's this sense in which there is a superiority, I think, that characterizes a lot of eliminativist microphysicalism, that it characterizes a lot of physicalism mm. more generally. And Folk psychology. Right? That's right. Yeah. And and it's really used as a bludgeon to shit on um, people who are religious, people who spend time thinking about consciousness, people who do philosophy of mind, people who are interested in politics, et cetera. People who have et cetera. A phenomenology. <laughs> yeah, right, right. People who feel anything at all. <laughs> People who live life as humans. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. And and it really makes me People think who of have experiences, yeah. I mean, all it that. Makes me, you know, it makes me stuff. again think of that fucking stupid project of rationalia that like Neil deGrasse Tyson was doing. <laughs> right? Like he wanted a world where yeah. the where like illusion doesn't exist at all, right? And because he is sitting on his throne and he can look down above the hoi polloi and he can be the the um the the physics king instead of the philosopher king who can constantly guide everybody towards um better rational understanding of eliminationism. Yeah, we'll just apply economics to society. How come no one's ever thought about that? It would solve all of our problems. <laughs> Right. Just data and input and information. It's just that easy, man. <laughs> I, I really enjoyed this part of the chapter for two reasons. One is the critique of the, like the beginning of the critique here of 
eliminativist microphysicalism. In addition to the part you just talked about where it's, a, it's not even a view, so how can you even defend it, right? Mm. Um, which I think is an important sort of normative. Um, it's like a normative undermining of itself, right? I don't want to say contradiction because it's not a contradiction, but it's like epistemically and normatively undermining, which mm. I think is a pretty important point, right? That's why he says good luck defending it because you can't defend a thing that's not even a view. But also, it defeats the very purpose it's a, its very own explanatory purpose, right? It starts out in this sort of the sort mm. of weaker view, which is reduction, right? And the point of reduction is to say, look, all these other domains—the social sciences, ethics, art, all that stuff, right? All those other domains—they exist, and we use them because they're pragmatic, right? But ultimately, we can reduce them and explain them by this most fundamental domain, whether it's the whole universe or the or the fundamental particles or whatever, right? So it's saying, yeah, these are illusions and they're pragmatic and they're useful, right? But we can explain them in other terms, right? We can explain them in other terms. Eliminativist microphysicalism says we must explain them in other terms. In fact, they only are ontologically like these other terms, right? They don't have any existence at all. It's independent. Which means the whole point that reductionism started with, which, how, which is how can we explain these other domains in terms of something more fundamental, goes away. The whole motivation of the project goes away mm. because you're not explaining anything anymore because it doesn't exist. You can't explain a thing that no longer exists, right? Mm. And in your effort to explain it, to take a view, I think it's even more forceful than that. I think that what you end up having is a sort of self-legitimized and self-grounding dogmatism, right? Oh, and, it definitely is. And yeah. so then that means that there's this element of power relations that we need to consider that is related to the perpetual defense of this various uh, of this viewpoint itself. Yeah, I think both reductionism and eliminativism, as he's defining them, are both dogmatic, right? Because the reason why they engage in those projects of explanatory reduction and in terms of elimination are ultimately ideological and are not based on evidence as we normally construe it, right? The yeah. difference is just at least reductionism has a point, right? <laughs> There's something to right. do. Which is explain, uh, you know, reductively explain all these other domains of things that are, are terms we normally use, concepts we normally use in the social sciences, art, ethics, whatever, religion. But eliminativist microphysicalism, as he's defining it, what's I think lovely about his distinction there, which I hadn't really thought about, is it doesn't even have that project. It doesn't have explanatory reduction as a project to engage in. It once it does the eliminationist, you know, ideological move, it's done. There's no more explaining to do because the other stuff doesn't even exist. You don't have to explain things that don't exist. Mm. And so, yeah, it's like, what is even the point of this thing in the first mm. place? It blows mm. itself up, right? It's like it unpins the grenade and then just blows itself up. Right, right, right. Okay, so after he kind of uh, well, talks about... Before we move on, can we talk about identity theory, which he talks about immediately after that? Oh, yeah, okay. Because I, I love this because I've thought this. I'm not like a philosophy of mind guy primarily, right? But anytime I read stuff in philosophy of mind, I'm just always struck by whenever you have identity theorists, which was like the dominant philosophy of mind position from, I don't know, like 1950 to 1970 or something, like in between behaviorism and functionalism, right? When Putnam um, kind of introduces functionalism later in the century. Identity theory is the main thing, and still in a lot of circles, identity theory 
uh, is very popular, and especially I think in kind of pop science, right? Where people who have some scientific background and not much philosophy just kind of assume that the mind and the brain are identical. They're just mm. the same thing. Right. And even in language, we talk about this, right? My brain thinks X, we'll say, yeah. right? Um, and we're just, you know, using that uh, haphazardly. We're not trying to make a philosophical point. But really what we're doing and we're talking like that is reinforcing the notion that the mind and the brain are literally identical. Mm. The same exact thing. In fact, the same concept, right? Like they're, they're sort of intentionally equivalent, not even extensionally equivalent mm. uh, only. So, and I, and I, and I'm not like placing people to stop saying mind and brain synonymously, but you know, <laughs> probably shouldn't anyway, because it reinforces this ideological paradigm, which we should reject. But that hobby horse aside, he mentions that, and now he's written a book on this, right? Your mind is not your brain or something like that. Um, so I know he has this whole separate argument that he extends there, but the basic idea he's saying is, look, the whole point of the identity theory in philosophy and mind originally was this reductive project, Right. We have these sort of mentalist, mentalistic notions that we use. Can we reduce those to what the brain does? Because that would be nice and simple, right? If we could explain those weird, you know, Cartesian, like, you know, ghost in the machine type concepts, which we're kind of uncomfortable with because they're not really physical ultimately. Hmm. If we could explain all that stuff in terms of what the brain does, that would be nice and neat and we could measure it and we could quantify it and we could, neuroscience could take care of this whole project and that would be wonderful, right? Just give it up to neuroscience eventually. That would be great. That should be our like future goal. Again, reductivism has a project, at least. It's a bad project. It doesn't work, right? But it's a research paradigm. Right. It's something to engage in and see if it works. Um, but the problem is they're always talking about mind-brain correlations, right? Well, what's the mind thing that we have to find a correlation in the brain to? So when you're angry, this mentalistic notion in an emotional notion, how can we kind of connect that in a correlative in the brain? And when you're thinking about this thing or have a propositional attitude, that's a mentalistic notion, right? Um, you're believing X. How do we make that into a brain correlate, right? And sort of connect all the dots and then we'll have the reduction. But this can't be true if the brain and the mind are literally identical, right? They're not correlations then. Correlations are between two different things that correlates. But if they're literally identical, then that's more like the eliminationist paradigm, right? Hmm. Then you just get rid of the mind stuff. It's the mind stuff just is the brain stuff, right? It's the whole like water is H2O or lightning is electrical discharge. Well, they're literally identical. Hmm. Can the mind and the brain be like that? No, they can't. And the very fact that we're looking for correlations between them shows you that they're not the same thing, right? Because then there wouldn't, there's no correlations between lightning and electrical discharge. It's a, it's a, it's sort of a mis, like a misleading way of saying, of saying it or stating it. They just are the same thing. Right. Mm. And so if we're not discovering that in the process of this reductive project, then look, it, it failed and we should give it up. And instead of admitting that it failed and giving it up, those who still hold to that reductivist project move on to eliminationism, which is just, I'm just going to ignore this <laughs> kind of right. Mm. I'm just going to pretend it doesn't exist because that whole um, reductive project of ex you know, the explanatory reductive project didn't um, follow through. Mm, yeah, and, and, and this is why he, this kind of fits 
also, I mean, it's, it's obviously right in when he's talking about how there really are no views and how you were talking about it like kind of ungrounds itself on page 144, which is just the next page after he's talking about identity theory. Uh, it's just two paragraphs later. Um, he basically says, uh, in the process of attempting to identify a viable position amounting to a relevant insight, we lost everything we were looking to account for. We are left with nothing to account for as we eliminated all domains in one stroke. We are left with a form of the absolute one, which is an absolute manifold, all the superelementary particles, but no concept around which to unite them, no domain of objects suitable for forming some discourse or other. So there's a fundamental incoherence here. It's, it's, it's literally, in the strongest sense, nonsensical to hold either um, uh, 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 an eliminativist microphysicalist view or how that's expressed in identity theory of mind, etc., etc. It is literally an incoherent project. Yeah, and he really brings in Carnap here to help make that point, which is a little bit bewildering, but I think it, it made sense. Like he, he's seeing a, a, a consonance there, um, which I appreciated. Mm. Mm. And talking about um, you know Carnap's, I'm not a Carnap guy, but... Uh, uh, meaninglessness um, in language, right? And how that and how that works, mm. right? For Carnap, it's this logical positivist sense, right? Which I, yeah, I don't here for Carnap's exactly. I've got here. Either. I've got a couple. I got a couple quotes highlighted. Um, so if, for people, if they're following, it's page one forty six. But he says, um, so. So he talks about Nelson Goodman, who's one of the most original readers of Carnap. Um, he inherits this this notion um, of uh, uh, about expressing ideas and shit like that. But basically, so Carnap understands objects as anything about which a statement can be made. So then Gabriel says, from now on, let us restate this in the following form as the first version of a formal theory of objects. This theory has it that an object is anything that can become the content of a truth-apt thought. Right? That's so just straight Frege, yeah. Yeah, so that's kind of what you were getting at, right? Yeah, falling under a concept, basically the same thing as can be the content of a truth-apt thought. Right, and then Gabriel says, this is not to say at all that there are no objects if no one refers to them, but rather that had anyone capable of referring been around in any situation whatsoever, they could have referred to either something in the situation or to the situation itself. The point I am making is not that being, or an object, and thought somehow are structurally correlated, but only that we can refer to objects. Then he says we can refer and to every single... Yeah, go ahead. No, that's super important, right? Yeah. When he's, when he's making that hypothetical, if someone could refer to it, then it's an object. Is not saying it's an object because someone can refer to it. That's right. Right? Those are not the same thing. He's right. just using the hypothetical to say if there were an observer, or better, better yet, a referrer, um, if there were a referrer, then it's an object. Right, right. And then he it's says... interesting. I got to think about yeah. that. I'm, I'm still trying to figure out what I think about that as, as a move um, that I agree is not constructivist, right? Because the constructivist, the really strong constructivist says objects are only objects insofar as they are in some way, or at least originally referred to, right? They are constructed in the act of referring, at least originally, um, and he's denying that, right? He's not making that claim. He's saying only that it's an, um, you can know something is an object if it can be referred to, but he's not saying that act of reference in any way constitutes the object. Right. What he is rejecting is that 
um, we cannot refer to all objects at once. Again, this is his rejection of a world, because this would amount to a worldview, and worldviews are impossible in any sense of impossible. And then I love this line. I like that. <laughs> yeah. I love this one too. No one really holds a worldview, as there is nothing to be viewed that could fall under the concept of the world. So again, whether we're thinking of a regulative principle, whether we're thinking of some sort of like microphysicalist foundation, you know, some sort of super elementary particles, whether we're thinking of uh, a theory of multiverses, some sort of grand unified theory, whether we're thinking in terms of some sort of philosophical project that grounds things in mathematical ontology, all of those things, they posit some sort of worldview. But he says, actually, no one really holds this worldview. That there's, and this is what's interesting. So there's some sort of like illusion, then, um, that is that is characterizing the tendency towards ontotheology, right? And that's probably why he's he's categorizing it as ontotheological, right, and as metaphysical. Mm-hmm. There is some sort of um, ideological bias, and and there's, I think this is rife for a type of like like psychoanalytic reading too, but there's some sort of like um, ideological underpinning, um, some, some assumptions that are grounding those projects. Um, and, that it, and, and that extends also into constructivism because then on the very next page, this is where he talks about constructivism. Um, he says, constructivism evidently is the view that something is constructed, which usually means that it would not have existed had no discursive practice brought it into existence. This is what Troy was just talking about. Trivially, discursive practices themselves are constructed. They depend for their existence on themselves and are therefore the real candidates for a causa sui structure. And then this is where it's it's interesting. You said you just needed to think on this a little bit. It's not that um, that there are no objects uh, prior to – what was it that he says? Uh, how does he phrase it exactly? Fuck, I forgot it. What, the like reference idea? Reference yeah, the, objects? the reference. Oh, here it is. Okay. Um, so uh, it's – it's not to say that there are no objects if no one refers to them, but rather that had anyone capable of referring been around in any situation whatsoever, they could have referred to either something in the situation or to the situation itself, right? So right, It's a test for objecthood, right? Not a condition for objecthood. Which is very similar to, I think, in some ways at least, Mayasu's project in After Finitude, right? And then the reason I think that that is even supported here is because on page 147, as he's talking about constructivism, right after he just said that um, constructivism depends on this causa sui structure, the very next uh, paragraph, he says, but this is an extreme form of correlationism. For constructivism says that there would have been no domain had there been no discursive practices. Yet, if existence is tantamount to a domain not being empty, and if there were no domains before the advent of discursive practices, then nothing would have even existed had there been no discursive practices. This consequence is a necessary, unpleasant consequence constructivists like Rorty or Luman regularly and sometimes reluctantly accepted, for they believed that they could be skeptics about the world in itself, which Luman explicitly equates with the unobservable one. And then he says, but this is not really a skeptical view, but it's rather a correlationist one. Yeah, this is super tricky, right? Because I think it's clear that he wants to, he wants to maintain some sense um, that reality presents itself to us, right? That we don't engage in fully constructing it, even though there's obviously times when we do largely construct it, right? What's a shortstop? There are no natural shortstops that appear to us, right? We constructed that category of things. But there's also trees. 
and there's some sense in which just there's something constructive is going along in, in sort of um, delineating uh, sort of natural kinds, right? But there's also some sense in which that's in some, I don't, I don't want to say natural because I don't like that term, but there's there's objecthood to trees more so than there is to shortstops mm. in some in some way, right? And it's really tricky to get at that. And so he's using this test to say, if it could be referred to, then it's an object, basically, right? It's a hypothetical mm. test for objecthood, which is tricky to flesh out, right? Why is that the case rather than this fully constructivist project? And I think this is where Frege's modes of presentation stuff is going to come in because there's something about um, referring to a thing is always viewing it from a side. It's always giving it a specific mode of presentation. Um, and so you can never refer to all the objects at once because you can't have a God's eye view of all the of, of everything. There isn't, there's no such thing. Not only can you not have it, there is no such thing in the first place. And that, and that goes back um, to how he starts the chapter, right? With talking about like a domain ontology and how like it is true that there are these various domains or let's say different perspectives or angles on being, but it's not true that there is some sort of overarching domain that grounds those subdomains. Right. Yeah. And that's going to be tricky to flesh out. I'm curious to see how that how that works out. But I'm but I'm uh, anticipating that right I'm sort of anxious and excited about it because yeah. I think a lot of what he's critiquing is right on the nose. Yes. Um, a lot of the weaknesses in these various views on the table, right? And the, the buffet of, of ontology here seems exhausted. Like it seems like the Kantian picture is weak because of the whole transcendental idealism thing, and it seems like the constructivist project is weak for all the reasons he said here. And um, the theological, the various versions of ontotheology are weak for all these reasons. Like, what's left to mm. do? And he's going to try and navigate the you know the rocky waters there, and come up with this view that maintains realism while also you know having like a sort of micro constructivism um, play a role as well. I think and that's 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 interesting. This also seems to relate, and this maybe this is the last thing we we can say, and then we'll wrap this up. Um, is he talks about the transcendental asymmetry of Kant. Yeah. Um, so this this for me was a little bit difficult, but so the way that I that I most understand it is he says, um, so Kant certainly laid out the idea that referring to objects is not itself an object most explicitly. I call this idea transcendental asymmetry. According to transcendental asymmetry, there is something essentially elusive about reference in that it can never itself become the object of reference. On looking more closely, mm -hmm. Kant and contemporary Kantians actually defend a variety of versions of transcendental asymmetry. It can be spelled out as an epistemological claim, as a semantic claim, or as a claim about mind and world. However, the lowest common denominator of all these readings is the idea that objects can only appear to truth-apt thought under conditions defined by truth-apt thought. And then the, the very next thing that I'm highlighting here is says, according to Kant, the concepts we employ in truth-apt acts of thinking and judgments are horizons determining a range of things to be observed from their points of view. And this is where I think it's going to be interesting. So he's critical of transcendental asymmetry, but like you've been saying, he's also then going to radicalize this because I think this idea that there are different, what did you call them, like micro, uh, micro domains or whatever, micro constructivisms or whatever, that there is something about a standpoint of the observer. And he quotes Kant here. He says, 
Um, Kant writes that one can, quote, regard every concept as a point, which as the standpoint of an observer has its horizon, that is, a multiplicity of things that can be represented and surveyed, as it were, from it. So this horizon, um, this standpoint, isn't some singular standpoint, but it is opened up to this multiplicity of possibilities for presentations or modes of presentations. I think that's how, right? Ga- yeah. right? That's kind of what Gabriel is going to ultimately say, yes? Yeah, I think that's what he's going to say. This is going to fill the gap. Um, this idea of, and I think these are going to be the fields of sense, are these, uh, his version of like modes of presentation at the level of domains or, or concepts, or maybe sets of concepts. We'll see how that works out. Yeah. Um, yeah, and then he says, yeah, okay, so yeah. typically so typically, the way that transcendental asymmetry works is this very simple thing. So domains of objects are constructed, right? Whereas the objects appearing within the domains are encountered. That's the, that's the way that it's typically understood, right? That, and he likens that to Kant, right? Where the yes. domains being constructed, the transcendental idealism stuff, right? the categories. Categories, the, the forms, yeah, the forms of experience, yeah. yeah. And then the empirical realism part, which Kant wants to marry with that, is the objects being encountered, and that's the realism. Right? The objects are actually encountered. They are not constructed out of whole cloth. Yeah, and then he says, but famously, Kant himself is ultimately not able to keep this distinction fixed as the non-intentional objects, uh, the objects that are supposedly encountered, they collapse into the horizons. Now, this made me think of Sellers. I recently read a paper by Sellers um, sort of engaging and critiquing with Kant, right? And one of the things that Sellers talks about is that, you know, Kant's big error is that he's sort of unsure, um, and he's sort of unclear, let's say, about the status of um, sense datum. And Sellers wants to then actually defend the possibility for sheer receptivity of sense datum. Whereas for Kant, unfortunately, Kant never really gets rid of the notion that even... Um, sensory experience is ultimately conceptualized, which is very much, I think, what Gabrielle is saying here. The non-intentional objects, they collapse into the horizons of the uh, domains of objects that are constructed. Or we could say the content is collapsed into the formal project, or the empirical is collapsed ultimately into the transcendental idealist project. I think that's what Gabrielle is saying, and I think that's what Sellers critiques, even though Sellers credits Kant um, he just says that what he'd like to do, for sellers anyway, is move towards that more empirical approach, which is not Gabriel's move, by the way, right? But but that's what yeah, sellers move not. is. Yeah. Which is Gabriel's critique then the same thing as basically just rejecting the phenomenon numenon distinction? Like you can't you can't hold on to the empirical realism with the numenon sitting out there as the thing in itself, the ghostly thing that you can't say anything about that's epistemically unavailable. Like that's what has to collapse which is in essence like a rejection of the microphysicalism like the the all-encompassing fundamental stuff which is also the hegelian project and the very next thing after gabriel says that kant himself ultimately is not able to keep this distinction fixed because the non-intentional objects collapse into horizons what does he do he quotes hegel length uh, a lengthy hegel quote right and says that actually Hegel points this out pithily in the following passage, which is full of his typical enjoyment of perverse metaphors. And it's a long quote. I won't read it's it. It's such a crazy passage. <laughs> yeah, it's a fucking difficult passage. Yeah. Yeah, dude. I have no idea what the fuck it's talking about. <laughs> yeah. So, um, but, but it's, yeah. It's clearly going to come up again, right? I think he's going yes. to use Hegel to help do this. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I think so. Okay. Last thing I wanted to say, um, just because there's another really good kind of quote here. So he's talking about how um, 
how uh, how there there can no there cannot be a kind of like a, a, a godlike exception at the Big Bang or whatever. Um, he says uh, he says it is impossible for anyone capable of a true fab thought to be around at the time of the Big Bang, with the irrelevant exception of God, because whatever one means by God, she, he, or it was certainly not around and engaged in thinking at the quote time of the Big Bang. This is mere superstition and not worth refuting. It is just a form of madness to believe this. It needs therapy, not refutation. He's such a fucking German. <laughs> like, come on, dude. What an assholeish remark. Don't I even know. say this shit. You I know. Have to... He always does this with these like little asides for four sentences. And it's like, why did you have to say this? Like, no one who's reading this is 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 thinking, well, actually, come on, man. I you know. didn't have to. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. At the very least, it's a footnote, right? You put the assholeish comments in the footnote if you feel like you have to include them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> and then, okay, so that's really the end The end of the chapter. Is there any final thoughts you wanted to say about this? Um, the, the last thing he ends with is like the, the um, a little bit of um, a foray into discussing the problem of the external world. Does yeah, that which you've already kind of talked about? Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's it's the same sort of thing. Um, he just says the main reason for the failure of the problem of the external world is its assumption of an overall external world as the total object of knowledge divided into bits and pieces by different acts of knowing. Again, he's just restating the his no worldview, his critique of the idea that there is some sort of um, external objective totality right or what he calls here the total object right that he then says is called the external world and he says this object indeed does not exist outside of epistemological imagination it is a project of fantasy i'm sorry it is a product of fantasy so um that's kind of how he ends he ends the chapter he says the notion of the external world is metaphysical poppycock not because there are only representations, but because not all spatiotemporal ancestral things belong to the same domain, the world as it, existed, as it existed before we came onto the scene. The world has never existed, nor does it exist, nor will it exist. The world's existence is out of the question. It is not even an external question. That's how he ends the chapter. Oh, I wanted to say something really quick about worldviews. Because I think okay. you made some good points about that that I really... I've been thinking a lot about, and I appreciate, I mean, he's not using a worldview in the sense that we normally use it, but I think it applies. I think he even kind of hints at the idea that it applies to our normal colloquial conception of worldviews, which is something like a frame that you bring to all experience to interpret it. And if you come out of a Christian background, they don't shut the fuck up about people having worldviews, so. Battle of worldviews, man. It's all (laughs) a battle of worldviews. Cornelius Van Til, man. Um, Yeah, and I think that that's, such it's an unfortunate way of looking at things it's not the way the world actually works it's certainly not the way that our minds actually work and this is i think i think what he's going to build up is a more of a ground up approach right rather than this sort of um bringing a frame to the world it's like building up um knowledge of the world piece by piece and coming up with at the best a very fragmented finite patchy frame through which to view the world that's constantly being adjusted right as new experiences new thoughts new beliefs uh, come in Mm. and i think it's just something about philosophers that are so intent on having a system through which you can interpret things because that makes it like easier oh i have this tool i can use that fixes everything right Mm. Um, but really it's just about you know 
and you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail kind of thing. And it's mm. more like bludgeoning, uh, bludgeoning things as if they're nails when they're not. So I don't know if he's going to get into that more of like a methodological point as far as epistemology is concerned, but but I find that to be resonant. And I think that we both grew up with this like worldviews or everything thing. It's been hard to shake. It is. Right? You, you start seeing the world through the worldview of worldviews in a way. And mm. that's like doubly fantastical in this negative sense. Mm. Yeah. And it's self-reinforcing because it is. It's, it's like when you what is it when you are a hammer everything looks like a nail or when you have a hammer everything looks like a nail um yeah when you only have a hammer yeah yeah when you only have a hammer and and that's true is it becomes like self-reinforcing and um intensifying right and i think i think that there is a there is a a subtle political project in this right and it's not obvious but i do you know i've been i that my mind is always thinking that since since that's kind of where my work is probably most oriented and so i'm kind of thinking again like okay so then what are the stakes then um and and is there is there a possible like material political project and i mean material in the sense of like something that's grounded like something that we can actually enact you know something with um things that we could that we could posit as like norms and and whatnot that we could actually derive from this no worldview that he's that he's going to be developing as something that is one critical of the tendency towards worldview, and how can we tie that into, you know, maybe like capital power and and certain um, power relations that uh, that 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 like political economy and that the critique of political economy try to identify? Um, how can we kind of like attach attach this philosophical project to those analyses? Um, and is there something valuable, or let's say, I'm sure there is something valuable. What is valuable, and to what extent can we can we employ this type of speculative philosophical project to those more generally consumed let's say phenomenological concerns right yeah i mean dare i say that what i see happening and maybe i'll be wrong about this but i'll make a little prediction it's democratic right the project is democracy because mm. if you lack this worldview picture right and you don't have the capacity for a singular worldview through which to to interpret everything that means, in some sense, and this is a Kantian point too. I think you have to do it together, right? The not the project of like of knowledge of building knowledge happens as a group because you're all fragmented. Even as a group, you're still fragmented, but maybe a little bit less fragmented, right? Hmm. So you have to engage in this democratic egalitarian project of world formation together, right? And it's not a constructivist one where you have to sort of get around a table and engage in a social contract that constructs the principles um, by which you'll live, right? That's not that. We've already kind of rejected that. There is an actual reality right out there. Um, but it's one that's very fragmented and it's uh, perspectival and it has these specific modes of presentation that are different for different people and different within the same people. And so hmm. this project has to be democratic to work at all. Um, I, that's where I see it pointing, uh, like a radical democracy, right? Ra Certainly yeah. not anything like the liberal democracy that we have in mind when we think of um, modern nation states in, in the West. Well, but because I think even a radical democratic project. Yeah, because because even the very terms by which we define the demos changes, right? The the very terms by which we understand 
um, a nation state, a community, a society, um, identities, etc. Those things are going to be shifted somehow because the way that they typically operate under, let's say, multiculturalism or diversity narratives and things like that is that they're wedded to a particular metaphysical orientation, you know? Um, mm-hmm. You know, a kind of a liberal metaphysicalism or something along those lines. Um, but there is some sort of metaphysical project that characterizes um, typical Western liberal democratic institutional rationality. And this project will fundamentally contest that. What I wonder is, and this shout out to my friend uh, Devin, who is um, an amazing uh, philosopher up in Canada, um, who writes a lot on, he wrote a book called The Philosophy of Anti-Fascism, but he wrote it, well, we had him on the show. Fuck, what am I talking about? We had him on the we show. Did. Yeah, yeah. Um, but he's great. He, I, I made a little post on Twitter about uh, uh, about Gabrielle's project in in uh, as a rejoinder to something he said in kind of critiquing Badu's project, who he says that, you know, part of the reason that Badu's philosophical project he finds lacking is that it doesn't build itself on the sort of like material grounding of class struggle, right? Which is something that Badu does kind of like get around. He sort of is engaged more in like a speculative philosophical project. And I think some people can critique Sartre for this as well, which makes sense since Badu is highly influenced by Sartre. But Sartre being critical of the possibility of class solidarity um, in favor of just group spontan- spontaneous eruption or something along those lines. Um, and so Devin find that critical, and, and I basically said, you know, I've been thinking a lot about this with regards to Gabrielle's project. Like, what is, what is the political project here? Like, what is – because he's not going to build it on some notion of class struggle, right? It's not going to be some sort of, like, fetishization of the proletariat as, um, as some sort of, that, like yeah. – singular point so then what is going that's to... one word of presentation yeah yeah exactly so it's gonna be really curious to see what the project ends up being um if it's not that yeah i mean that's still gonna be part of it right yeah it's gonna be one specific mode of presentation that's fragmented but helpful for its own purposes and i, I yeah i think that that's that's correct ultimately that still leaves a lot of room for detailing what its importance is in specific contexts mm. But yeah, it's going to reject the idea that all history is the history of class struggle, right? Definitely. Yeah. That's, a, that's a totalizing picture that he's going to reject. For sure. Okay. Well, let's go ahead and wrap up there then. Um, thank you guys so much for tuning in. Uh, you can hit us up with any questions or anything like that on Twitter, owls underscore at underscore Don. You can email us, owls at dawnpodcast at gmail.com. And uh, as Troy said at the outset, if you want access to bonus content, you can go to patreon.com slash owls at dawn. And we are actually going to record the bonus episode right now. So if you're listening to this, it will already be up on Patreon. It is our election special where I'm sure we're going to both rant and hopefully at least try to spout some sort of positivity and hope and optimism as well. So it'll have a little bit of sticky leaves, I'm sure, in there. So, yeah. You're going to do that part, right, dude? Yeah, I've got some hope. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But yeah, so uh, thank you so much, and uh, we will catch you guys next time. I think that's pretty much it. I mean, unless there's anything else you want to say, dude. Yeah, thanks for the save there, dude. (laughs) (laughs) Das Padani, Americanski.